This episode is sponsored by A-List. A-List is an innovative educational services provider made up of passionate educators dedicated to helping students from all backgrounds achieve their academic goals and successfully prepare for their educational futures. From standardized test prep for the SAT and ACT to professional development, data analytics, and AI learning platforms, A-List annually serves more than 80,000 students across the U.S. and via its international offices in London, Dubai, and Shanghai. Now, I happen to know one of the founders, and he is exceptionally passionate about education and building a brighter future for the students he works with. And I think this ethos has permeated the entire corporation. Check out their website at alisteducation.com. I'm really excited on this episode to have a dear friend with me. Uh, We have Daniela Connolly. She is a physician who practices integrative medicine. She's also a mother of five children, speaks five languages, and runs an organic farm. Thank you, Daniela, for joining me today. Oh, I see. Thank you so much for for having me. I feel uh, spoiled and and definitely a little humble. So thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, am I remembering this correctly? You grew up as an only child. No, no. I um, I I had a wonderful older brother, who sadly passed away um, in a car accident and. He was about 21 when that happened, and I was maybe 16 and a half, 17 years old. Um, and it was definitely one of the most pivotal things uh, of my entire life, I would say. Um, and his loss has affected me for years and years and years. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, let's talk more about that. Um, what has the impact been on you and how has it informed some of your life choices? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, I think um, the immediate impact, of course, is intense sorrow. But I think over time, um, they brought up a lot of feelings of loneliness. Um, uh, and it's it's taken me a really long time to to get over my brother's passing on some level, but it has also been a source of emotional growth. Um, and when you when you feel such intense things, I think you tend to look inward. Um, and and so perhaps it's you know it's has served its purpose maybe in some way or another. It's really extraordinary. Um, when you say it's maybe served its purpose, can we, uh, dive into that a little bit more? Sure. I think, I think when you, when you go through something like this, um, it increases, uh, the volume dial on empathy. Um, Mm. because I think you, you, you travel through a path that then other people may describe to you and you can feel for what they've been going through. Um, I think that's that's been one of the pieces, and and when you uh, experience pain, whether it's physical or emotional or even intellectual, um, you can un- uh, really understand how other people are experiencing that. Yeah, that's really extraordinary, and it's um, I have to say it's really a wonder for you to be a physician with that orientation to have that really empathic sense. Um, I imagine it's. Um, 
impacted or it's informed maybe um, your orientation around your patients? I think so. Um, I think that when you, as a physician, you're given this this uh, opening into people's uh, most inner thoughts and 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 um, some of their hardest memories, perhaps. And when you sit with a person and you and you listen to them go through their uh, the things that have affected them, or um, or even if you have to give them you know terrible news about you know whether they have cancer or whether they have some other disease. Um, that that empathy organ has already been tuned, mm. you know, and so you can really um, sense and reflect what they're feeling and, and just be present with them. Uh, I, I'm just curious, going through a, a sense of loss at that stage of your life, did that impact at all your desire to have five children? Well, I think, you know, I think having children for me certainly meant um, having a purpose um, and uh, bringing forth life uh, is obviously very meaningful for anybody who becomes a parent. But um, I think like we had discussed a little bit in the preamble to, to this uh, podcast, you know, any time that you can, generate life and see it unfold before you, I think is, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary experience. And maybe, maybe my brother's loss impacted the fact that I had uh, children, but um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. But I, I've always chased loneliness, um, or tried to chase it away. And, and I think having a big, gregarious, chaotic family um, certainly doesn't leave a lot of space for loneliness. I love that. That's so true. Um, it fills that sense of loneliness with chaos, maybe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, lots of chaos and uh, dirty washing, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that um, every grieving process is unique, mm -hmm. has its own timeline, and, and you s indicated um, that it took you a while to to get over this. And But it was a source of uh, emotional growth. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just I'm curious, um, kind of what was it um, that ultimately helped you get to a better place with his passing? You know, I, I think for years I'd been struggling with this sort of um, undertone of sadness, and I don't, I don't want to call it depression because I think, uh, I don't think it was that necessarily. I think it was just um, like carrying this this unresolved pain with me and um as the years have gone by i've i realized how much of a drag it was physically and emotionally to to, to carry this memory of of his loss and um i'd done a lot of research around uh, psychedelics and read uh, many books including michael pollan's book how to change your mind and um, I decided to explore psychedelics for the first time. Um, and I, in fact, went to a retreat in Holland um, and experienced um, this sort of dismantling of concepts uh, mm. that occurs when you, when you take in a psychedelic. And, and it was an extraordinary experience as I, as I kind of came out of that journey. Um, 
I, I understood, and it was in a very clear language spoken to me, that he was gone, that there was no use in spending energy trying to find him anymore. And it came as a complete shock. I mean, I went into the psychedelic experience sort of hoping for some sort of mystical reunion with my brother. And yet, as I came out, it was a very practical um, sort of uh, clap in front of my face that said, it's done. It's finished. You can move on. And I mean, it felt like 20 years of psychotherapy in a four hour process. I mean, wow. harrowing. Uh, nothing of it was enjoy enjoyable, but um, it really pressed the reset button for me. And and I think this is the first year where I can think about him and and my eyes not fill with with uh, with tears. Frankly, wow, that's amazing. Mm. Um, now I know you you moved around a bit while you were younger, mm -hmm. and um, I think you probably were in Switzerland at the time that this occurred and uh, maybe just walk us through the impact on, on your family as a result of his passing. Well, uh, you know, we were a very mobile family. We, uh, we traveled a lot and we were separated from the extended family for many, many years. Um, and so it was really just the four of us. It was a very sort of uh, suburban nuclear family mom dad brother and sister and my brother was because of his personality and and him being a firstborn and i think he, the, the fact that he was a boy he really was the anchor uh, for the family and um he was absolutely adored by my parents and and when he died i think our family died also, you know, the concept, the, the, um, the hierarchies, the systems that revolved around my brother's ex existence dissolved and we dissolved as a family. And, you know, this happened when I was 16 and a half, 17 years old. I graduated a year later from high school and then left my house uh, mm -hmm. and never really to return. And so, um, it was a, a disassembling, I think, of, of our family. And that was, um, I think, probably set us all adrift. You know, my parents retreated into their grief and I retreated into mine. And, and uh, we really didn't reunite again until, um, actually, I had my firstborn. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and it was years and years and years and years after that I had yeah. my first child and... So it, uh, it kind of meant a loss of your parents for you as well, to some degree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the grief was so so intense, um, and it's it's hard to grieve uh, in a culture where grieving is given no space. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I had to go back to school. My father had to go back to work, and and my mom was alone. And it was a time when, you know, doing therapy wasn't really a thing, and um, and I think. Uh, we just didn't give words of expression to the loss that we felt. And yeah. that was part of the reason it was so protracted and, and affected us all, uh, certainly my parents, for so long. Well, and um, given the empathy that comes so naturally to you, I imagine there was some of your parents grieving that um, you absorbed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Daniela, for sharing um, that with us. It was um, very heartwarming, very touching, very um, candid. <laughs> that means thank you. Um, so you leave Switzerland, and um, as you've shared in the past, you headed for the Galapagos Islands. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yes. So I'm originally from Ecuador, and, and um, I left uh, Switzerland where I'd finished high school, um, you know, I just wanted to leave all this pain behind and I wanted to reunite with my family, with my grandparents and in Ecuador. And um, I ended up, you know, these are some of these miraculous things that kind of sort of happen to you or you make them happen for yourself. I'm not quite sure which, but, but um, I went to the Galapagos Islands uh, as a tourist initially. And I just found the place to be magical, exhilarating, um, beautiful, uh, healing. And I, I had a, a young guide, uh, you know, take us through the islands. And I said, man, how do you get this gig? <laughs> and he said to me, well, you kind of have to apply. And, you know, they, they figure out if you're a good candidate, you have to go to the Charles Darwin Research Station, yada, yada. And I had time on my hands and I applied. And lo and behold, um, they, they allowed me to join their naturalist guide training uh, deal that they had uh, and I became a guide and I was a naturalist guide for about a year and a half living on the boats you know blonde, not blonde hair but you know when, you, when you're down at the beach you you end up having sort of uh, bleached hair and, and big feet because you never wear shoes again and uh, it was a great time it was a great time that's fantastic um so um, you're there, you're having a great time, you're enjoying the mm -hmm. environs that you're in, but at some point you decide, I'm going to go study medicine. So share with us what happened there. Well, it was, I was in a sort of at a, at a point in my life where I could have very comfortably stayed in the Galapagos, but I recognized that either I cut ties to that life and then returned to educating myself and then moving in a different direction or or I stayed because the the pull was so intense um, and it was a, a hard decision to make I guess between um, helping people understand how critical that ecosystem is and educating um, tourists and travelers about this extraordinary thing that is the Galapagos Islands versus helping humanity perhaps in a different way and going down a healthcare route. And so I was torn between these two things. One thing felt a little bit selfish. So staying on in the Galapagos Islands, having a very comfortable uh, oceanside lifestyle seemed um, somewhat selfish. Uh, anyway, long story short, I, I, I pondered this question and I fell asleep. And the next morning I woke up knowing definitively that I had to leave that lifestyle behind and actually mm -hmm. drag myself back into university and get started with my medical studies. And, and, and that's what I did. And really there was no looking back. Amazing. Wow. I have to imagine that some of the empathy that we were talking about earlier was 
a potent motivator. Um, you wanted to to help people, and that was a strong draw. Absolutely, absolutely. And by helping people, you know, health is the, perhaps one of the first steps towards economic well-being too. Yeah, that makes. They sense. don't have a way of elevating themselves out of poverty, and so it, the next thing that happens is that their the, the the ecosystems around them become degraded with overhunting or overuse. And so I felt like perhaps my contribution was to improve the health of the population so that they might um, stress the ecosystem less. In fact, yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. And, you know, there's a whole, um, I guess, ecosystem is the word that's coming to mind. It sounds like I'm trying to make a pun, but uh, the reality mm -hmm. is that there's a strong interrelationship in all these areas. When I was in university, I studied a lot the impact of health infrastructure on a, a country's economy. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're battling things like malnutrition, um, how can you educate your people in a way that they get advanced degrees and create innovation that creates technology that moves away from uh, deforestation? Exactly. Right? It's, um, so it all becomes this vicious circle. Mm -hmm. uh, that, mm -hmm. That's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you're in medical school. Now, you've shared with me that um, you suffered from dyslexia. So oh I'm just goodness, in yes. complete and total awe that you <laughs> made your way through medical school with dyslexia. So please share with us more about that. Well, dyslexia um, is um, something that I only really understood when I was much older, when I was a, a young child. Um, I had tremendous insecurities because I, I understood that my brain didn't work the same as other children's and mm. I didn't learn how to read until I was about 12 or even 13 years old. Um, and so my strategy to, to, to keep up with school because I enjoyed school. I certainly enjoyed learning was to listen. And so because I couldn't read, I absorbed everything that I could through my eyes and my ears. And um, I would do things like, uh, get up early, go to school early, and actually copy my uh, my school friend's homework because I couldn't read enough to do the project, but I was able to at least write it out, if that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> uh, and, that's a, that's uh, a strategy you had to deploy. It's, I mean, uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was an absolute strategy, and thank God, you know, testing was multiple choice so I could sort of slug my way through the questions but then I didn't have to worry too much about finding the answer because the answer I knew but the question was it was tough to read the question but um, you know I really I, I learned to read uh, when we went from England which is where I did most of my primary school to Switzerland because I had the excuse to say, oh my gosh, uh, I don't know how to read German. <laughs> and so that was, that was my excuse to sort of sit down and ask for help and, and have somebody teach me. And, and uh, German is an awfully hard language to learn, but at the very least it's phonetic. Yes. You know? So to be dyslexic and try to learn to read in English is, <laughs> torture um but so yeah so dyslexia uh 
was interesting in medical school. In fact, one of my best friends in medical school, she was dyslexic. And what we would do is that she would read, let's say she would read, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, some chapter on physiology. She would read it. But as a dyslexic, when you read, you can't understand. Yeah. (laughs) So she would she would read and I would listen and then we would flip. Then I would read and she would listen. And this is, this was our little sort of dyslexic learning, uh, learning team, learning group. Um, And that's how we made it through literally just reading for each other. And then I think eventually the dyslexia uh, didn't go away, but I've since built lots of strategies around triple reading my emails and, Hmm. you know, um, Wow. Doing, doing stuff like that but it's dyslexia it, it has always been um uh, like a secret weapon it that is sounds a like lo- a fascinating way to describe it sorry to cut you off but but please i mean tell us more secret weapon it's a secret weapon because um you see the whole thing so as a dyslexic when you see a page of writing it makes you nearly nauseous because you can't it's so hard to focus down and to read from left to right and just to stay on that single line Mm. so the the natural inclination of the person with dyslexia at least in my mind is that you look at the bigger picture and when you are a bigger picture seer you see more things, you see more connections. Um, I seen when I was a, a guide in the Galapagos, but also when I traveled into cloud forests and the Amazon and, and such, um, I would see animals in the canopy uh, minutes before other people would, because I was wow. continuously taking in the patterns of nature and I would see odd things right like movements or a shade a different shade of brown and there would be a whole family of owls staring at us all but nobody had seen them because um because when you're when you're taught to to read you sort of you're taught to narrow your focus as as opposed to expand it and i think that that um taking in of the gestalt taking in of the whole system has helped me as a physician because when I walk into the room very quickly, just by scanning the person in front of me in a very weird way, I can't describe it well, but it's a, it's a taking in of all of the person. And I think that that has been a gift for me. It really has. It's hard to describe. And I think perhaps other folks with dyslexia out there are sort of nodding their head, hopefully vigorously. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. I mean, when they say if there's a, a deficiency in one of the senses, it heightens the others. And you kind of have described that. Mm. Um, being able to see the um, forest for the trees, as it were. Um, <laughs> yes. And I would just like to highlight the fact that you are fluent in five languages. Yes, that happened accidentally. It had really nothing to do with my... Uh with my abilities i just happened to be very small in a different country in different times of my life well i, I would argue though that um, a lot of uh, language acquisition is auditory and so yeah. if you're a great listener um, yeah. and, and 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 you you were also your sight was was heightened so mm-hmm. kind of uh in, you know suggests that uh, there's some truth to that that um, your other senses become almost uh, superhuman 
And I think it's important for for folks to understand, and your listeners know this already, but I, I can tell you that as a as a physician, as a primary care doc, you know, I've I've seen so many kids with learning disabilities, whether it's ADHD or ADD or dyslexia or or you know a combination of the above, or you know, it's not that you lack intelligence. It's not that you don't have the ability to do well in life. It's just that you do things somewhat differently. Thank you for that uh, that heart-touching message. I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. So I appreciate you doing that. Um, Certainly see some themes developing here. Um, Mm -hmm. Your your sense of empathy, your desire to help people. I imagine that had um, a lot to do with your pursuing a master's in public health. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, being a, a physician in a developing country, you understand that um, uh, you can only do so much as an individual healthcare provider. You know, I can provide people with antibiotics should they need them or deparasiting medicine if they needed it. But if I wanted to be more effective at a population level, I needed to get involved either with um, policy, politics, public health. I mean, in a country like mine, like Ecuador, if you didn't clean the water, you know, you're not going to uh, tackle malnutrition, you know, while kids get diarrhea because their water is contaminated with amoebas, you're chasing your tail. And so that's why I felt so strongly um, about public health, and I still do, and it's always been part of my medical practice. Again, sort of that bigger picture, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That resisting to focus down on, <laughs> on, on something, to pinpoint something, but rather just to keep the bigger picture in mind. For sure. Well, and I also think that theme is highlighted in your approach to integrative medicine. And mm-hmm. I know um, nutrition is such an important theme for you. Let's talk about that. Oh my goodness, nutrition. Um, such a broad <laughs> ah, such a broad thing. But you're right. I mean, um, you know, it was interesting when I was um a medical student in 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 Ecuador, um, you know, most of the diseases that we saw were one way or another infectious. Um, but yet people were very resilient you know, mm. and, and um, somehow when I came to the United States, I thought, well, you know, people uh, don't have the constant pressure of infectious disease. They must be super, super healthy. <laughs> you know, in my mind is coming in as sort of an immigrant to the United States and then uh, meeting the reality in residency that in fact, um, yes, people had access to calories, mm. but uh, they were uh, and and had clean water and for the most part clean air, and yet they were not resilient to disease. And in fact, they were much sicker than what I expected them to be in a first world country. And over time, I realized surely that it was nutrition, um, at least in part why people were so unhealthy in the United States. And and I think that hopefully that resonates with a lot of folks. Um, you know, we're only as healthy as the ingredients that we put into our body. So I don't think it's a stretch 
Um, and frankly, when I came to the United States, I was, uh, you know, I was in awe at the abundance of food, but was really surprised by the lack of flavor. <laughs> I don't know if that happened to you, Asim, or, or at least, you know, you yourself grew up in so many places and traveled so much. I don't know if that was something that you noticed, but... I, I was less aware at that time. Aware. I'm far yeah. more aware now. And the, the food definitely tastes different in, in Asia or yeah. Europe. And yeah, um, yeah there's, a, there's a distinction there. And, and you know, as I'm sure many of your listeners understand, there is a relationship between flavor and nutrient uh, density and uh, levels of antioxidants, right? When you take a, a strawberry that's gigantic and you bite into it and it's like water, you can understand that that fruit doesn't have the ingredients that you need to nourish your cells. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where I was um, fascinated by nutrition and, and by extension you know how do you how do you generate food that has enough of these anti antioxidants and 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 nutrients and vitamins and minerals and and that led us to uh raise our kids on a farm and start farming but uh in the last 15 years or so we've we've nurtured our soils enough to produce good fruits, vegetables, and, um, and livestock. Which is extraordinary. And your organic farm is called Field to Fork. And I'm going to ask right. you to describe your logo because I think it's um, really inspiring. That logo was um, kind of a bear <laughs> to, to articulate. Um, but for your listeners, Field to Fork Farm is an organic farm in New England. And um, we felt very strongly that we became much better people and much wiser people because we were tending to the soil. And our tagline, so to speak, is uh, grow food, harvest wisdom. Oh, so well said. And so our logo is, a, is an owl representing wisdom, and that owl is perching on a fork um, that is, is sort of a two-ended fork. One side is your your classic hay fork, and the other side is your your uh, dinner fork. I think it's extraordinary, <laughs> and it's it's born of an intuitive wisdom mm -hmm. um, that uh, that you felt and, and an instinct. But uh, I know you also did some some study uh, with um, Dr. Andy Weil and and his organization. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. When I started practicing medicine. As a physician, you would be paid more if you prescribed more, which is <laughs> shocking to think about, right? And in fact, you would get paid less if you spent time discussing recipes and how to choose good food. And that felt incredibly frustrating and um, oh, just sickening, really. And I really thought I... It, my time had come to leave the practice of standard medicine. And, but uh, I was very thankful that I found um, uh, Andrew Weil and, and his integrative uh, fellowship. Um, I applied for it. I was accepted. And I, and I met for the first time kindred spirits, other, other doctors that were aware of the damage perhaps that they had been doing by 
by not taking the time to discuss nutrition and lifestyle and wellness and spirituality and meditation with their patients. And so it was, it was great. It was like a rebirth um, in terms of getting energy again to go into the healthcare field. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Daniela, this has been such an extraordinary conversation. Thank you for your uh, courage to be so forthright and, and honest about your experiences. That uh, I'm certainly moved, and, and I hope those listening are as well. Thank you so much, Asim. It's been a, a fantastic uh, opportunity to share my thoughts, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.